Welcome to Into the Well with myself, Ryan Wilms, and my co-host, Sean Hotchkiss. I launched Into the Well in early 2019 to have a place to write about my experiences and my path to living authentically and mindfully, exploring the journey of healing and learning to live in true harmony. The podcast allows Sean and I to take deep dives into specific topics within the pillars of being, exploring the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual, as well as hosting inspiring guests, learning more about their journeys, their experiences, and the tools that have helped them grow along the way. On this episode of Into the Well podcast, we sat down with David Sutcliffe and we talked about his journey into acting and then out of acting and some of the challenges he's faced along the way, finding the Radical Aliveness program and teacher through the Eslin Institute, his work with plant medicines and how that led to a connection with the Lakota Native American traditions. We talked to him about balancing the masculine and feminine, his own workshop evolution, and starting to combine that with his film history and starting to make documentaries that sort of outline his work and where he wants to take it. Hope you enjoy it. David, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you here. So I guess we can kind of jump straight into your story, you know, um, publicly you're more known as an actor and you've recently gone through a bit of a transformation personally and now career wise, but I'd love to hear how you got into acting to start with. It's such an interesting career path. Yeah, I was, well, I was an athlete. Uh, I was at the university of Toronto playing basketball and my second season I got injured and I knew I was out for the year and I was living with a guy who was a playwright. And I asked him, I said, hey, I've got all this time, you know, maybe I could help you out. I could do the lights or something. And he said, well, why don't you audition? And so I did. And he gave me a little role in his play. And I loved it. I just loved being on stage. It felt, and it felt very much like sports. You know, rehearsal was like practice and the performance was like the game. So it felt familiar to me. And I got a lot of positive feedback. So uh, I just kept doing theater at the University of Toronto and got better at it and eventually graduated, got an agent, uh, started doing some bit parts here and there, moved to New York, and then got uh, my break uh, on a CBS pilot called Carly that was never picked up. But that put me in the game. And then I started working pretty consistently. I moved to Los Angeles shortly after that. And then it got a part on Gilmore Girls, a recurring role as the father on Gilmore Girls, which became this very popular show and continues to be popular. And so I had a nice, you know, run as an actor, a amazing experience, got to work with all kinds of interesting people and go to some amazing places. And uh, it was exciting to be in Hollywood, to, you know, got to kiss a lot of pretty girls and have a lot of amazing experiences. Um, and then around 35, right, really at the height of everything, mm. typical story, right? You get everything you want and you feel empty inside. And I ended up going to this retreat at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, famous retreat center with uh, Ann Bradney. It was called Radical Liveness. And uh, a friend of mine had, had recommended it to me. And I was completely blown away mm. by the experience, not only what happened for me personally, which was deeply profound and eye-opening, but also what I witnessed just being in a group of people mm -hmm. and seeing 
this emotional, deep, deep emotional expression. And I was also fascinated by this work and by this woman and Bradney, the way she would facilitate groups. Uh, and I just had this feeling like, Oh, I want to know everything that she knows. I want to be able to do what she does. Mm -hmm. And I want to make a documentary about this. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get any of that out of my head. And really from that point on, that became the focus of my life, not the acting. Mm -hmm. I mean, I continued to act and Mm -hmm. continued to pursue it because that's, was my career. That was how I was making money. That was my identity was wrapped up in it. But, uh, you know, over time, I ended up going to her school and graduating. And then I went to Toronto to do a TV series. And while the TV series was in hiatus, I would do workshops. And, mm. and, uh, and just recently, I made a decision to, you know, officially retire from acting. And now I'm doing this work full time and making also making documentaries. So uh, yeah, I'm just you're meeting me at this point of <laughs> transition and which is scary of course to to I'm 50 years old so to make a career transition at my age is a little unnerving but it's also really exciting uh you know and I'm just I'm just following it like it it, yeah. it it's almost people oh, you made this decision I'm like well I'm just <laughs> going with what I'm interested in I mean that's why I became an actor because uh, it's what I wanted to do that's where my passion was it's I was interested in it and there was nothing else that was pulling me and I followed it. And uh, so that's really just the same thing that's happening now. I'm just following what it is that's, yeah. uh, that's, uh, that's coming up for me and, and following where it is that I want to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that can be a little bit harder to do in your 40s and at 50 than it is when you're 20 coming out of university. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. It's scary. And, you're, and I'm, give, I was, I mean, I'm giving up a lot. I'm giving up a lot of opportunity, um, a lot of uh, consistency and stability but you know as an actor you you that's one of the things you do get as an actor you learn to tolerate instability because you it's very often you don't know where your next job is coming from so i have a tolerance for that and mm. so i uh, you know in this transition obviously there's a lot of uncertainty i'm building something new i'm building a new business i'm building a new practice uh, there's a there's a lot of unknown, but you know, 25 year acting career, I've, I've managed to you know develop some skills that allow me to uh, to tolerate it. Yeah, it seems like uh, being an actor, both like on set in different roles and those in between jobs, is you have to be able to be comfortable being uncomfortable in a way, and that seems like it probably translates a lot to this type of work and you know the emotional deep dives and isolations and things like that. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a connection between my acting career and what I'm doing now. I mean, part of the reason that I was interested in acting was, well, the artistic expression and wanted to express myself, but also I wanted to get to know myself emotionally. I was fascinated by uh by psychology and and this this you know, most of us experience, I think, uh our catharsis through stories. Mm-hmm. And so actors, you know, part of the actor's job, as I see it, I mean, is to tell the story, but also to to feel what the audience is unable to feel inside themselves so that the audience can have a, a cathartic experience through you. And the work that I'm doing now is very, very similar. It's very, uh, very cathartic. It deals with emotions. It's it's uh, powerful 
uh, you're going deep into the unconscious, deep into the unknown, and you're trying to help people feel, really. I mean, that's the basic intention of the work, and we all understand that feeling is good. It's good to feel our feelings. It's not (laughs) healthy to hold our feelings back. So it it feels like there's a real connection between the two things for me and, and the skills that I developed as an actor, getting comfortable with being seen in front of an audience, having everybody look at you, right. you know, it's a, it's one of the stories I tell is I remember my first, uh, big episode of Gilmore girls where, you know, they come knock on your, it's my big scene, seven page scene <laughs> with Lauren Graham. And this is the right. climax of the episode and they're paying you a lot of money. And you know, it's the show's popular and they come knock on your door. It's like, we're ready for you. And, uh, they're going to shoot your close up and you, you know, they've been working for an hour to get everything ready and you got to come up and there's a whole crew of people looking at you in a monitor and there's a whole, you know, crew of people making sure that everything's just right. And you got to perform and it's, it's terrifying, but it's also exciting. And in a way, what I'm doing now, uh, leading these workshops, it's very similar. You know, Mm. you get a group of 15, 20 people come and you are performing in some sense, right? You're there. And so I, I, the acting helped me get really comfortable being in front of groups of people and um, helped develop my leadership skills and, and, and also deal with the projection Right, because right. when you're uh, an actor, nobody really sees you exactly. I mean, it's, it's obviously out in the street with fans; they're not really seeing me, David Sutcliffe. They're seeing the character, and mm-hmm. and people have all kinds of images and fantasies about what it is to be an actor, and <laughs> yeah. that's all getting projected onto you. And it, for better or for worse, some people, oh my God, you're so wonderful. Oh, this guy's a fucking asshole. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's the whole range, and it's the same when you're leading a workshop. Mm-hmm. Um, people are projecting their own stuff onto you. In my case, usually their father right. issues, you <laughs> yeah. know, for better, for worse. Yeah. And so it becomes your job to, uh, hold that projection and mm. not take it personally. And, and so the acting definitely prepared me for that. And that's, you know, f- as far as I'm concerned, probably the most difficult, but most important skill that, um, you can have as a leader is being able to hold and not take personally other people's projections. Mm. When you had that, uh, the first weekend at Esalen, when you did the radical aliveness thing, what was like kind of the big bang takeaway when you left that weekend that was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get into this. I gotta learn this. Was there something that you, that you walked away from and you were like, this is it? Yeah, well, it was the shadow work, really. They yeah. call it uh, the lower self. And I did a process where uh, I acted out. It wasn't really acting out. It just kind of happened where I, like, tortured and killed my mother. <laughs> wow. now, I just want to say, my mother's awesome. You know what I mean? My yeah. mother's, she wasn't abusive or anything like that. But um, she was very young my mother, and she was a little self-obsessed, and my parents split when I was six, and so um, I think my mother was really overwhelmed, and so there was a lot that I didn't get from her that I needed, and I think, and I, what I realized in this process is how deeply painful that was for me, mm. and on top of that pain was just this murderous, 
rage. And I had no idea that that was inside me. It, it was so intense. I couldn't believe it. And then once I went all the way into it, and I remember, you know, as I was going into it and I was screaming and yelling and punching and hitting this pillow and Anne was like right beside the pillow. We were kind of in this role play and it went on and on and on. And I was just like, ah, and I could feel the group. And it was a lot of women in the group. Like they were freaked out. Yeah. So I was like, it was most like middle-aged women. And I was like this 35 year old actor. I was all jacked up, you know, strong and aggressive. And so I was pretty a unique character in that room. And the women were freaking out, like crying. And it was super intense. And then when I got, went all the way into the rage and, you know, mm -hmm. came out the other side and that's when I felt the pain and uh, my body just started to shake. Like, like it was like crying from my balls for like 10 minutes. Wow. Just like, I couldn't believe it. And I was like, that, that was inside me. I've been holding on to that yeah. for however long. And like, how's that been affecting my life? How's that been yeah. affecting my relationships with women? It's like, so the idea that, you know, uh, that I wasn't, that that was all inside and I wasn't conscious of it. That was like a revolution. Yeah. And and then you look around the world and you're like, oh, everybody's got that. Yeah, Some version sure. of the yeah. same thing. Sure. And people need to know this. Like yeah. this is important information. Yeah. And but it's also very hard to get to because it's nobody wants to feel that they have that those kind of intense mm -hmm. feelings inside themselves. One, it's hard to reconcile to. Mm -hmm. Two, it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And three, it takes it to your pain, which yeah people don't want to feel, you know, yeah. we, we do everything and I do continue to do everything to avoid feeling my pain. Right. So that was the big, for me, the big takeaway. Um, it was, yeah, it was deeply profound experience for me. I'm laughing and thinking about all these women being like the stud from Gilmore Girls is killing his mother totally. in this workshop. Totally. Yeah. Well, and then what happened was once they all came around, I started crying. They got it. Oh, sure. Like that, that was the other thing. You know, I, I, I think we, we think we're walking around with these feelings inside us and, and we're alone, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, and that's what you realize. Everybody's got it you know like yeah. being in this group and even though i was very different at least on the surface from these people by the end of it i realized oh actually we're all the same mm -hmm. yeah you know maybe different ages different genders whatever but fundamentally we're all the same and that was a deeply comforting feeling to know that i wasn't alone in these mm -hmm. feelings right that there's there's other people that feel that way and then in fact when i let myself express and feel them, it brings me into connection, deeper yeah. connection yeah. with people. And that was also a revolution for me in, in, in how I was seeing things. And, and the, one of the things that I really try to preach at my workshops, it's like when people bring out their aggression, when they bring out their judgment, when they, when they do it with consciousness and intention, not just kind of randomly, but they're doing it within a process, it brings them into connection because it's the truth. It's right. the truth of how they feel, or at least some part of the truth. They're not mm -hmm. hiding anymore. They're not behind a mask. And that is liberating. Right. You know, and once they experience that, they're like, oh, okay, okay. I don't have yeah. to hide this part of me. Anymore. It's okay to let it out. It's okay know, to let it in out. In those safe places, like 
yeah a workshop or a retreat things like that totally we all try to be so put together all the time and it's funny it's that messiness that really like opens it up and allows other people to connect 100 percent, yeah so after you ended up taking the radical aliveness course yourself how did how did you feel kind of stepping into that sort of teacher facilitator role and uh, being able to work with people one-on-one at that point it's scary at first. I think, you know, do I know mm-hmm. what I'm doing? Am, mm-hmm. am I an imposter? Do I know enough? And I remember my first group, uh, somebody brought their, they had, they had been uh, sexually molested as a child. And they were afraid and they were about to have a kid and they were afraid that they might do that to their kid because they right. knew the stats. They they were like, I don't have that impulse, but I'm scared of that, that that's inside me. Mm. This is like my first group. And I'm just <laughs> like, you know, and I remember freezing like, holy shit, that is fucking heavy. Yeah. And do I know how to handle that? And what I realized over time is all you really need to do for people is to be present with mm. them and in a place that there's no judgment that's all people are looking for. And if you can hold space, you know, I know it's a term we hear a lot, but hold space, meaning if you can just be with somebody, um, without any agenda, without any demand, without that, you know, ask them to do anything or be a certain way and just be with them and whatever they're feeling, that's incredibly powerful and healing for people. And so once I realized that I was like, okay, maybe I don't, have the perfect thing to say in every moment, or I'm not mm-hmm. always, you don't know, have the perfect intervention. If my intention is just to be present with people, that's enough. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of let me off the hook in terms of the self judgment and the feeling of the imposter syndrome. But over time I did a, you know, I, I did a lot of workshops and a lot of groups in the first couple of years to, because I wanted to get good at it. Mm-hmm. And I knew practice and repetition was the best strategy. And, uh, so I started to develop my skills, gain confidence, you know, all kinds of things got messy and weird and I had to learn a lot and, uh, but I got better and, mm-hmm. uh, and now I'm in a place where, you know, I feel like I know what I'm doing. I can walk into a room of, you know, 15, 20, 25 people and I can give them an experience and I can manage mm-hmm. whatever comes up. And, um, and that's a good feeling. I think what you said about, that distinction of just that the most important piece is just holding space is so important for people that are starting out and being like, well, I'd like to work with people, but feeling like, Oh God, I really got to show up and I got to like give them a show and really fix them, you know? And, and what you said really resonated for me. It's just like the most important piece is like people feeling really held and heard. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Being, being heard. Yeah. That's, that's, that's super important. Yeah. You, you, well, one of the things that can happen, and this happens for all people, coaches, therapists early on, is you want people to like you and right. you want mm-hmm. them to think that you're good at what you're doing. And so now you have an agenda with that person. You have an mm-hmm. unconscious demand yeah. that they, and they can feel it in the field. <laughs> yeah. And so it creates separation. Yeah. And it's almost impossible to avoid. You want to become conscious of it very, very quickly and and. Most therapists, you know, I I did a lot of supervision, which is basically therapy for therapists Mm. early on. And that was one of the things that I, and I made mistakes early on that I had to overcome very quickly. Like you can't have any demand that the client like you, Mm -hmm. that they appreciate you, that (laughs) they get you, that they see you. Like you just have to let all of that 
go and let them have their experience and 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 to trust that the the people the clients that are right for you they'll they'll come back and those mm-hmm. who aren't will leave and that that's that that's okay mm. but yeah it's just it takes a lot of the pressure off yourself once you realize that all you have to do is just really be present for people and in the places where you can't be that's where where your work is mm-hmm. yeah and that was the thing that was also <laughs> really amazing and my teacher said this to me that the four years of training, it's great. But once you start practicing, that's when you're learning and your own personal process just, it takes off. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a client come in or you have a group and you're having a problem or they trigger you or there's something going on, Mm -hmm. well, they're coming back next week. (laughs) So you got to have it figured out. And when you're, I'll tell you, man, and I've, I've, I've had it happen to me a few times. When you're in a room with like 15, 20 people and you're triggered <laughs> and you're the leader, it's not a good time. It's scary <laughs> no. as hell because so you can ju- and they can feel and you're just like, mm, and how quickly can I come back to center? And this is why yeah. I often uh, work with an assistant. Just, mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't really happen to me anymore, but, uh, but it could, it could happen again and probably will. That's terrifying Mm -hmm. so that motivates you very strongly to deal with whatever you have to deal with (laughs) with individual people because there's people in the group that are gonna that you're not gonna like Mm -hmm. they're gonna they're they remind you of unconsciously of your mother or of your brother of your ex-girlfriend or you know all kinds of shit so you have to really be careful about that stuff because if you start projecting things onto them or saying things that are not that are really more about you and, yeah. and coming from your trigger. Well, you can do harm. Yeah. And so, and you know, you, you have to be very, very, very careful of that. And, uh, and so, yeah, I get a lot of supervision and make sure that I'm, you know, as much as I can be, we're all human, but, um, I try to be as, uh, clear a channel as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important for sure. Um, other than Anne, did you have any other sort of teachers or even tools, maybe books or things that like helped you in that process that were sort of significant, significantly useful? There's a lot of great teachers at the school that came through this woman, Anna Timmermans. She's got an institute in uh, Holland and um, there's a guy, uh, Jorge, down. He's got an institute in Mexico. There's a, the, the, it's a core energetics. That's the mm. Anne, Anne took her work, took the core energetics work and evolved it. Um, she called it radical liveness, but the, the, the base of the work is called cornogenics and there's institutions all over the world. New York was developed by this guy, John Paracas and, uh, evolved out of bioenergetics, which maybe some people have heard of Alexander Lowen. And, uh, but you know, for me, it was more really experiential. The thing that I liked about the school and about the work was, it was a place that I could go and I didn't have to hold back anything. Mm-hmm. I could just go say whatever I wanted to say. I could take risks. I could be a complete asshole. I didn't have to be nice, mm-hmm. you know, because the idea is we, we're all going to get in this room together and agree, you know, mm-hmm. here are the rules. We're not going to hurt anybody physically. Mm-hmm. I might say some things that hurt somebody's feelings, but we're not going to physically hurt anybody. And um, we're all going to agree that, to not hold back. Mm-hmm. 
And that's like, wait, I don't have to hold back. I don't have to hold back anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can say whatever I want to say. It's like, it's liberating. <laughs> yeah. And so once, and it may, and you end up making big messes and you end up saying some things that are wrong. And, but that's the only way to discover, right? It's like you, we hold all these things inside us and until they come out, we don't really necessarily know what they are, or what they mean. Mm-hmm. And so it was a place where I could get everything out and look at it and then have it reflected back to me. Mm. And that, that's, the biggest part of the work for me, that, mm-hmm. that the, the thing that's most exciting and most terrifying. Yeah. And that's what I say to people in my workshops. It's like, don't hold back. Mm-hmm. Like your job is mm-hmm. to not hold back anything. Don't worry about if somebody's working. Don't worry about if I'm talking. Don't worry about if it's toward me. Like mm-hmm. if you think what I'm saying is bullshit, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can tell me it's okay. Like, and we'll deal with it. We'll deal with whatever comes up. And that takes you into chaos. Mm-hmm. It takes the process out of control. But, that, but that's the only way to, to get to some kind of resolution. You have this structure, this internal structure, and you're in control. The only way to break free of it is yeah. to go out of control. So, yeah. uh, and that's a scary thing for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you go out of control... And everybody starts to go out of control. There's actually a coherence that happens. <laughs> yeah. Like, and if you can spot it and track it and follow it, it's it wants it takes you somewhere. It's like the emotion in the room, the energy in the room. It's like it's looking to become coherent. It's looking to get to the truth. Mm. So that's that's what my teacher did, and that's her genius. I think she's able to. Um, be in a room that's completely chaotic and you feel like it's madness and what is going on and to somehow find the thread that ties it all together, which may take, it may take a day or two, right? Sometimes you go home at night. I mean, often in my workshops at the end of the first day, people are not feeling good. (laughs) They're agitated. They're annoyed. They're like, well, what is this? Mm-hmm. And I always, it's always a little scary for me because, again, like I was just saying, okay, they're not having a good time. I want people to have a good time. But I also know the next day, it's like it's going down. Yeah. <laughs> it's and, because it's like they're, down. and then yeah. it comes out. And yeah. it's always the deep work happens yeah. that the day after that. So um, that for me is is the the big thing that I uh, I, I took from it, just that ability to tolerate massive amounts of, of chaos and then, and then to see it through to the end and to see where it goes. And it's, mm-hmm. it's actually, it's, it's exciting and beautiful process. And just the invitation of like, where else in life do you get to, you know, not hold back? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I used to be able to places. do it in hockey, but yeah. you know, out in the rink, but not, you know, and conflict happens, you, you know, just whatever you could say, whatever you want, you tell somebody to go fuck themselves anything, you know, and it's just, I, for me, it was very exciting. Yeah. So now in the last sort of couple of years, I guess you've developed a couple of different group workshops, really. One of them is more masculine focused, all mm-hmm. males. And then with, uh, with a partner, Angela, you've developed a men and women workshop. How do you find the, you know, are the versions of chaos and those different with those different dynamics or how do you like sort of differentiate the two? Yeah. It's, I mean, when you have just a group of men together in a room, it's very different than when it's men and women. Um, I did mixed workshops 
or you know for most of uh, the first five or six years. I did a few men's groups, but mostly it was mixed workshops and um, and I would say actually probably sixty to seventy percent women showed up. And, uh, and I, yeah, I work with this woman, Angela and we, you know, it's, it's, it's powerful because we become mother and father, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're very unified. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's very powerful for the group, I think, to feel like mom and dad are like, they love each other Mm -hmm. and, um, they, they, there's no ego between them and they really care. Yeah. Uh, that, that in and of itself is a, is a healing experience and we work. Uh, really well together and it's just a natural flow. And I, I mean, I love working in mixed groups and, and because so much of our issues are around relationship, you know, mm-hmm. so many people are struggling in relationship with the opposite sex and, or just love relationships in general and sexuality. And, and that's where life is the most complicated. So when you mm-hmm. get men and women in a room together, uh, it's, it's, yeah, that's just, there's a lot to work with. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I, the last couple of years, I just, you know, I, I saw what was going on in the culture, the conversation that was happening around men. And you would hear all the stuff about toxic masculinity and, and I would read a lot and it wasn't resonating with me, the, um, the assessment and the uh, solution for the supposed problem. Right. So, um, even though I think in, in many cases there's, there's good intentions and in some cases I, I I'm not sure that there's good intentions. Mm-hmm. I think there's a shadow there, but um, so I just wanted to start working with men, you know? And so I created this, uh, artist warrior King kind of little company, I guess. Um, and for the last, uh, year and a half, we've been doing just men's work and it's great, man. It's, mm. it's guys, uh, it's the one thing that I'm aware of. Well, there's a couple of things that I would say that's in, it's a myth that women are more emotionally in touch with themselves than men. That's fucking bullshit. <laughs> uh, men and women process emotions in different ways. And just because right. women are able to cry uh, more easily does not mean they're more in touch with their emotions. They're just as emotionally uh, stifled as, as men are. It just looks a different way. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think you see in the therapeutic world is because it's so dominated by women, most therapists are women, there's an unconscious feminization of the process. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in a, uh, a process, you know, back at Esalen, I went back and um, I was screaming and yelling about something. I, you know, I wanted to fight all the men or something. <laughs> and the women were scared. And Anne was like, oh, I don't know if this is okay. And, and this other guy got up and it's like, I think what you need is just, you know, a hug. I'm like, no, I don't need a fucking hug, motherfucker. I want to get it down. Like, I want, let's go. I <laughs> yeah. want to like, I want to feel these guys. Like I want to, I want some violence, you know? Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't exactly know what that was about, but it was a strong impulse in me. And the fact that they were, they couldn't see it or they were denying it or they were afraid of it or they, they, they pathologized it in some way. I, I, it was wrong. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I'm men, men process emotions differently Mm -hmm. than women and that's okay. And so it's important to have all these all male spaces. And, uh, again, at the end of the day, it's the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's like guys have pain that they need to feel guys have fear that they, you know, that they need to space needs to be made for so they don't feel ashamed. Mm -hmm. Um, but the way into it, I think can be different. And so, uh, I've been having a great time with these, uh, men's groups. 
Um, guys have just been going for it. Uh, they're yeah. into it. They get it. They want to feel. They want to be challenged. And uh, it's been it's just been fantastic. So I feel, you know, and I see it going on all over the place. Mm-hmm. So I feel very uh, inspired uh, by what's happening uh, right now. You know, I don't know if you would call it a men's movement, but yeah. some something is happening with yeah, men, and I think it's deal. I think it's just great. Yeah, I think from my perspective, like you know, it's hard to say you should do one thing before another thing because everyone's like journey is unique. But if you're able to have that men's experience you know, you can offload a lot of that deeper shame and some of those harder things Mm -hmm. and get there a little bit more directly without women in that group and in that situation. So that when you go to maybe do a mixed workshop or you're in relationship, then you can have a little bit more of a pure experience with less of the shadow in the way. And you can kind of shed a little bit of that first. No, I I totally agree. I I mean, I think, you know, I was listening to John Gray, you know, he wrote that book, mm-hmm. Men Are From Mars, Women yeah. Are From Venus, which, you know, I understand that that kind of thinking is a little bit out of fashion right now. Mm-hmm. But he wrote a new book, which was about the hormones and, you know, how that impacts. He's a really smart guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he was saying that uh, in this one podcast, which was really interesting to me, he's like, don't bring your emotional problems to your, to your woman. Right. And I was like, ah. Because I've done that. I thought yeah. that was the right thing to do. Totally. Open up to my woman. He's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Bring that to your male friends. Yep. Bring that to the men, right? right? Yeah. She doesn't actually want to hear it. She may say she wants to hear it, but she doesn't actually want to hear it. And it does something to the polarity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I thought that was great, you know? And, um, and so I think it is important that we have male-only spaces, exactly mm-hmm. what you said, you know, that guys can go process their stuff on their own. And I think we've lost that a little bit, you know. Totally. I mean, that, and that's the one thing that I'm noticing with uh, with the men is they they don't have a lot of community right. with yeah. each other. They're not going off doing their fishing trips or whatever it is, or their bowling league, whatever. But they, they're they're pretty much with their girlfriend or their wife, and then they have work and their family. That's it. Mm-hmm. There's no real male time, and I think. I think it's really important that they have that. I mean, that's the way it's been. The sexes have been segregated for most of history. Men mm-hmm. work together and women work together. And I'm not saying that we should go back to that, but there's something in that um, mm-hmm. that's important. Yeah, I think that's such a, a great distinction. And that that when I heard that too, it really jumped out to me. Like I I can certainly relate to before jumping into this work and like doing deeper work with men and also by virtue of having done that work, like get getting intimacy with other men in my life in a way that I hadn't experienced before. It was a huge lift because all of a sudden I could go to them now, talk about what I used to bring to my girlfriend or, or maybe my mom or like someone, a, a female in my life. And all of a sudden it's like, it's a different type of connection that yeah. you, and you can bring a, different person to your relationship, you know, or you can bring a different side of yourself to the relationship if you're unloading that in a healthy way with men. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's important. And and I think, yeah, we're, we're starting to understand this and I think it's important for women to have their own sacred spaces for themselves. And so I'm, I'm happy to see that that is happening and I'm happy to see that this thinking is taking hold and I also am happy to see that there's a lot of women who are like, yes, please go, go be with, 
yeah. your guys and work it out. And, you know, they're, they're, there's really a lot of support that I see from women, which is great. Yeah. And I, I think, too, is like the more that we talk about this sort of topic on podcasts and socially as well, women can kind of get a better understanding of what that work looks like because it can also sound like something they don't want guys to be doing as well, maybe. <laughs> right. Well, and, and you, you also have to have the space to, you know, you might have to bitch and complain about your woman. You know, I mean, that might be part of it. You might have to get yeah. that out. And uh, you can do that with your guys, uh, your guy friends. But, um, and maybe if your woman saw that, you know, she would be offended. It's like if somebody reads mm-hmm. your, I remember my girlfriend read my <laughs> journal yeah, and I wrote some shit. I was like, I told you not to read yeah. it. This is where I'm like, it's, don't take that shit personally. Right. This is where I'm just yeah. downloading. Like I'm just getting my frustration out. That's not actually how I feel, but now that's in her head. She can't get it out of her mm-hmm. head. It's yeah. like, so yeah. So in your own sort of processing in the last, you know, couple, I guess we've known each other almost like a year and a half, maybe. Um, and we were talking a bit earlier today kind of about this sort of finding your own personal balance between masculine and feminine. I know in my own journey, I've spent the last couple of years really dealing with my father and now it's shifted to my mom. And, uh, when we met last April, you were kind of having to face some fears around the the sort of masculine and overcoming that. And now you've talking a little bit more about embracing the masculine and kind of balancing off from having learned more from the feminine side and finding that balance with yourself. How's that process sort of unfolded for you in the last few years? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was trained by a, a woman in, in a school that was mostly women. Mm. And so, um, and I'm really grateful for that. I mean, she's one of the most amazing teachers and facilitators that I've ever been around. She's a genius. So, but I did feel, I mean, and I brought this up at the school. I said, you know, I think there's a, there's a bias here. The school's got a feminine bias. And I was a jockey guy. And I was like, you don't really see me. You don't really fully get me. Mm. And that was a struggle for her and for some of the people at the school. They didn't like that, you know. But, of course, I was saying, you know, like, that, that makes sense. I need a man. Like, I, it's good mm-hmm. to have mom here. Mm-hmm. But I, I could feel this longing for the father, for the guidance of the father and a different type of love, a different type of attention. And I, I didn't grow up with my father. My parents split when I was young. So um, I've had this deep, you know, longing and pain around wanting my father, wanting my father, this little boy. And mm-hmm. that's a hard thing to really um, feel. And I remember doing, in my first year at the school, we did this thing called Family Constellations. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you kind of, it's like an improvisation and you, you set your family up in a constellation. And most people put their mother kind of close to them and their father far away and their brother over there, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you do this improvisation and you pick an age. And I think, I think at the time we were like, you were like five years old. How did it feel when you were five? And I would say that like of the 13 processes, nine or 10 of them ended with the person on the ground screaming for their father and myself included. And I played the father in, in a lot of these 
psychodramas. And that had a very lasting impact on me to wow. see that over and over and over again, how many people were like wanting and longing for daddy. You know, yeah. you just heard that over and over the wailing. Mm. And so, and that's inside me. So I've, yeah, I've, and I, I think there's something about, um, I've overcompensated probably, you know, I've gone the other way in terms of my masculinity, tr- feeling like I have to be tough. Um, I have to be dominant. Um, and, but now I'm trying to come into balance with it. There is something about, uh, there's a firmness to masculinity. There is a, uh, uh, just a kind of an authority and a discipline, uh, that you associate with masculinity that I didn't get, that I, that Mm -hmm. I know that I need in my life and that Mm -hmm. I've been lacking. And now that I'm in this career change. I mean, acting is a very feminine thing. You're, you're accessing in large mm-hmm. part, the feminine part of you, the feeling, sure. but now that I'm creating a business, that's more, and I'm masculine, it, you know, it takes structure and discipline. Mm. So it's like, Oh, I've got to work in all these parts of me. And so I'm, I'm, I'm having to find them and I did not have a good role model. Mm-hmm. And so I'm have to, I'm having to figure it out for myself. And I think there's a lot of guys out there that are doing that are in the same position that I am. And, you know, it's really an epidemic of, you know, men either raised by uh, single mothers or raised by fathers that were distant, emotionally Mm -hmm. distant. Maybe they're working 24 hours a day or whatever, whatever it is. But so, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. I'm kind Mm -hmm. of rambling about all the dad stuff, but I guess the point is it's, it's heavy. Mm-hmm. It's heavy in me. I feel like it's heavy in the world. Yeah. And one of the reasons that I feel so compelled to talk about it and to do this work is because I, having seen all those people scream for their father, I realize how important it is for men to show up yeah. for their children and to be present. And that it's not like the mother. Mm-hmm. You know, it's different. And yeah. that the the father has to assert their parenting authority that they that deferring to the mother and the mother's intuition all the time is wrong mm. it's you know the father has his own intuition and his mm. own authority as the parent and that it's different than the mother and that they have to assert that you know mm-hmm. and um i think a lot of the stuff around people screaming about safe spaces is unconsciously a desire for the father the father is the one who's there to protect and i remember my therapist asking me you know about safety is like, have you ever, like, when did you feel safe? And I was like, I've never felt safe. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Really? You know, because uh, my dad wasn't around. It was just my mom, and my mom is awesome, but she wasn't going to protect me from yeah. something or well, someone. Did you feel like you had to protect her? It, well, exactly. Right. You know, so, so much of my identity became about I have to take care of my mother, I have to be there for my mother. And then I played that out in my relationships with women, which is, uh, it's not entirely healthy, right? Because I'm defined by how well I'm caring for them, you know, and I'm betraying some aspect of myself and some part of them may like that, but ultimately that's not what women want. You know, they, they're not going to respect that, Mm -hmm. um, they want you to be your own man, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's been, it's, for me, it's been a journey and continues to be of trying to figure out exactly who I am as a man. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's not 
easy and yeah. you know we're getting all kinds of mixed messages from the culture and mm. it's, it's it's a hard i think it's it is a hard time for a lot of men figuring out like what what is what am i doing what's my role what's okay what's not okay um so yeah i'm i'm, I'm grappling with all of it yeah it's definitely a very tricky balance of, you know there's it's not really talked about you know our parents do the best jobs they can but it's hard to find those you know, healthy role models and mentors outside of our parents that, you know, you mentioned like cultures in the past or tribes, you know, there's so much more of an elder wisdom keeper, keeper mm. culture that we don't really have now as well. So it's, it can easily feel like we're alone trying to figure this out. Yeah. 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 I think we're at a time when it's, it's like we're getting beaten over the head with what doesn't work but as far as what what does we're still kind of like trying to figure that out um it almost seems like there's a lot of room for a new idea of masculinity to emerge but we're still kind of in the muck around it a little bit yeah and i'm i'm and you know i'm i check in with youtube and different all the social media stuff i see a lot of young guys like really trying to do it right they're mm. trying to figure it out and they're building communities and you know uh, the, the whole no fap thing you know it's all these guys trying to get off porn and yep. and this huge community i think it's great you know that mm -hmm. what you see is they're trying to be better yeah they're trying to they're trying to be better and they're supporting each other and uh so i'm i'm inspired by what i see going on out there and um yeah and i think men are you know they're the role models are coming I mean, we're seeing them in the culture, and and yeah. uh, so I, I'm. I don't know. I'm, I I think it's going to work itself out. But yeah, we're in we're in some kind of transition. But I'm I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic about it. Mm. Mm -hmm. One of the other sort of tools that I know you've been using along the way, and how we kind of were connected through our friend John, who met you during uh, plant medicine ceremonies. Um, how did you sort of find that along your path and how has that been, you know, as a tool for your growth and evolution? It's been great. Uh, I had a friend, you know, about started talking about about 10 years ago and I, I was terrified. I was like, I said, it was a big no, like the idea that <laughs> I was, it was going to take me completely out of control. Right. I just could not, I couldn't even fathom the idea. And, and then at, at some point, I just had this impulse and I called him up and I said, okay, I think I'm ready. So he sent me to this ceremony and, uh, it's the moment the medicine came on, I immediately went into terror, like <laughs> into, into hell. It was the worst feeling that I've ever experienced because I realized this thing has me. I have no control. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what this is. Time does not exist. I'm stuck <laughs> in hell forever welcome to your new reality that's <laughs> and I say like, here. you know and and then i remembered a guy just before the ceremony said to me hey if you get into any trouble just try to be grateful for whatever experience you're having mm -hmm. and so i started you know this mantra of oh, thank you for this experience thank you for this experience <laughs> and it worked it created a little bit of separation between me and my fear and then the music started and uh, and then I ended up having this really, really beautiful ceremony and, uh, but it took me a year to try it again because I was so scared to go back mm. to that hell realm. Mm -hmm. And, but I finally did go back and I found this community out in Joshua tree. Uh, and I, I kept going there and get, it got deeper and 
started to get, I went back into that hell realm, but I got more comfortable with it. I, cause yeah. some part of my brain was like, you're not stuck here forever. You're not, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to be okay. And then I found, uh, the Shipibo, which is a, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's its own style of, of ceremony, very specific style. Um, and I fell in love with that and yeah, I ended up doing probably over three years, I'd say like 50 ceremonies. Wow. And I think the thing, I mean, there's a lot I could say about mm-hmm. it, but to take it back to the beginning, it became for me about going into my fear. Mm, yeah. Um, I think the, all the work that I did in quarter and radical liveness, was really powerful, but there was still some terror inside me. I think that was probably mm. pre-verbal, mm-hmm. very young place that was hard to get to that, um, that the plant medicine was giving me access to. Mm. And, um, so I, you know, the, uh, isolation retreat that I did, a, I guess it was about two years ago, a year and a half ago. I mean, I just was so, so scared mm-hmm. of what was going to happen mm-hmm. there. And I, came out the other side and that I felt like the, the, my journey was completed there. I, I've mm. continued to do ceremonies once in a while, but yeah. I feel like I, you know, I, I felt my terror yeah. and I made peace with it. And that's really for me, uh, what plant medicine, the plant medicine journey was about. I mean, it's about a lot of different things, but, um, you know, it's hard to feel our fear, yeah. you know, and, and to enter into the void I mean, that's what it felt. It was the the, the terror of the uh, the void of existence. Like, I don't exist. Like, I'm, you know, it's like, the, I always think of Darth <laughs> Vader at the end yeah. of Star Wars when he goes off into space. And I remember as a kid, like, that seemed like the scariest <laughs> thing ever. Like, he's just going to spin in space forever. <laughs> totally. Well, that was the terror that ayahuasca felt like to me. Yeah. Uh, and I faced it and... You know, I feel better for it. Yeah, I mean, how empowering does it feel to come out <laughs> the other side of that and be like, "I'm still here, I'm okay." Yeah, it feels it feels great. I mean, it's not easy. I mean, you know, if anyone out there is thinking about uh, doing drinking, sitting ayahuasca, it's like it's no joke. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's hardcore, and it will take you to some deeply, deeply uncomfortable places, but. Yeah, I having faced that fear, it feels really liberating, and life feels you know less scary. And I'm more mm-hmm. aware of what my fear is about when it comes up, so I have more consciousness around it, and so I, I think I'm less a slave to it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm able to manage it. Uh, it still comes up, but um, definitely the medicine has helped me. Uh, uh, deal with it in a way that uh, I don't get stuck there for as long, or I have, you know, I have some tools to be able to get through it. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a good way to describe it as like that sort of tool, because I think, you know, a meditation practice can do a similar thing where it's like, we're going to get angry. We're going to get sad. We're going to get, you know, annoyed or whatever. So it's just like how, how much quickly can we center ourselves again Yeah, and not get caught in those yeah. emotions? That's that's it. I think that's the whole game. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to get triggered. You're 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 going to feel sad. You're going to you know be overcome by rage at different times. But how quickly can you come back to center and and not judge yourself for it or not shame right. yourself to understand it's part of your humanity and and that's you know that that's an important important skill. 
when you were talking about uh, the ayahuasca experience, um, I was reminded of us talking about vision quests earlier because I had a very similar experience on a vision quest where I was very isolated and sitting on a mountain by myself and thinking about what if I just had to sit here for the rest of my life, you know, and I didn't have any interaction with people. Would I be okay? You know, all these types of feelings. And I know that you, uh, you had a kind of gnarly experience on a vision quest recently in Hawaii that you were telling us about earlier. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I've, I've been working, uh, in the Lakota tradition for the last uh, three or four years, mostly through the songs, learning the songs with this uh, Lakota man. Mm. And it's been great uh, going to Sweat Lodge. And so this was my first vision quest, quest which is one of their initiation rites, a purification, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, it's four days, no food, no water on the hill, as they say. Right. And uh, I had done some isolation retreats before it's uh, you know fasting so the four days without food was like okay the isolation okay the water the no water i was a little concerned about (laughs) and fortunately it was hawaii and so there was a lot of moisture in the air so psychologically i was like well there's water everywhere so it's you know it wasn't in the desert i know people who have done uh no water uh in the desert and it's really really hard (laughs) but um yeah, man. I mean, I get why these traditions uh, continue because it's a, it's powerful. I mean, I really did have visions. It, 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 and I was saying something about uh, you can't survive that long without water. I mean, mm-hmm. six, seven, eight days, maybe 10 days. So at three, four days, you start to feel like this isn't good. <laughs> you know, your, your body physically does not feel well. And you start, you, the death is not there, but it's not that far off. And you can imagine um, if this went on, like, I, you know, it's like I would die. And I had never really felt that before. Mm. And there was something that was, uh, it's very humbling, very, very humbling. And that, mm. which is a good thing for me, my defense is, I have a narcissistic defense. So it's very good <laughs> for me to feel humbled. And that's what I got from that experience more than anything. Um, but also just, um, I mean, one of the reasons that I love the Lakota is like that their spirituality is so connected to nature. Mm -hmm. Um, and nature is both beautiful and inspiring and it gives life, but it's also brutal and can kill. And it's, you know, it's the light and the dark. It's all one thing. And there's something for me, I, I don't want to say that this is what the Lakota is or Native American traditions or religion is. But for me, it's just this idea that the light and the dark, they're not separate. It's right. all one thing. And you have to reconcile to that. And that's that's been both terrifying mm. and also I can feel the the power of it to really reconcile that the there. Yeah. There's just a lot of, there's darkness, there's darkness in us, there's darkness in the world. Mm-hmm. It's always been here. It always will be. It's part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea that we're going to transcend and go into the light, I mm-hmm. think is, uh, incorrect <laughs> personally. Yeah. That's just for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that a real deep, spiritual connection and enlightenment is really about the acceptance of the truth that, that life is, 
is light and dark and that, that mm-hmm. and that we are light and dark and that light and dark is all an expression of of god mm-hmm. it's all the same thing there's not one without the other and that's right. for me that's what this work gives me and i think that's one of the reasons i'm drawn to it yeah i definitely agree with that i mean i think so much of our culture is like separation you know separating different parts of the body you know in the medical system or separating even the idea of like this work and life balance it's like well mm. no it's just a life balance you know <laughs> right you know and it's it's ancient you know it's like you're talking about in the lakota tradition but you look at like the yin and yang sign and so you've got light and dark but you've also got a little bit of the dark and a yeah. little bit of the light mm. in one another and if you don't integrate everything like as holistically as that then you're going to cause some, you know, friction and you're going to be suppressing something and that's going to cause an imbalance. And it's just, it has to be all integrated together. And I think accepting that, you know, in ourselves is probably the hardest place. You know, you can see it in nature a little bit more easily, but to be like, okay, I have light and dark in me and that's okay. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, I, I, I always think if I was 18 years old and 19, 38 Nazi Germany, I probably would have Mm. been a Nazi. I mean, you know what I mean? Who knows what horrific things I may have done. It's easy for me to say, oh, no, I would have been one of the ones who did. It's like, probably not. (laughs) You know, I probably would have done some horrific things. And so that's a humbling thing. I I think I did more damage to myself and and to other people when I was in denial of that part of myself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, once I embrace and accept it and I'm aware of my capacity for cruelty Mm -hmm. and knowing when I'm triggered, it's like my, and my defenses come up. It's like, I might say something, you know, if I'm going to fight with, you know, a girlfriend or something, I might say something vicious. That's really my defense. If I have some awareness of like, Hey, I've the capability of doing this, I'm probably less likely to act on it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I, that's why I think, you know, uh, shadow work is, is crucial and, um, and it, yeah, it's not, it's not easy to face these parts of ourselves, but it's definitely uh, to me, the path to liberation. Yeah, I definitely agree for sure. Um, back to the Lakota, you know, we've been in some song circles together and you've definitely developed quite a beautiful voice for the songs and built up quite a repertoire as well. How's that sort of process, you know? probably being introduced to it in the ayahuasca circle and then going outside of that and now diving deep into the Lakota traditions with the song and going to Sundance. It seems like that's something you've become pretty passionate about. Yeah. Well, um, I was at a ceremony, uh, in, in Yalapa ayahuasca ceremony and they, they were Shipibo, uh, practitioners but they also sang lakota and i every time the lakota songs would come on i would just like sit up and <laughs> lean in i was just mesmerized and i would I very quickly would try to just hum along and then when i got home from that i got an email from a friend a friend of a friend really who said oh there's this lakota song circle starting which was, i was like what <laughs> and i of course signed up for it and that was the beginning i wasn't somebody who was a singer at all. But, um, and so I was, it was, you know, you're learning a new language. It was very awkward at first. With and no words. No, yeah, no <laughs> words or, or words that are very hard to pronounce. And, um, and, you know, and you, 
over time, I, I just kept practicing, to be honest. I don't know, for whatever reason, I just got really, really into it. And I practiced and practiced and practiced and kept going back. And and I got stronger and I got more confident in my voice. And then, you know, people started to say, hey, you know, you have a nice voice. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> Is it, you know, I never heard that in my life. And, and I think, you know, everybody wants to sing out on some sure. level, right? It's It's amazing to see somebody sing out. So that experience of being able to sing out was like really, really gratifying. And uh, yeah, now I, you know, I sing very regularly. I, pra- I still continue to practice a lot. I'm still learning songs. I probably know maybe maybe 75 songs. My goal was 100, but I think I'll probably go past that. And I've just, yeah, I've made a commitment to the path. Um, it's step by step, but I went, I went to the Sundance uh well, there's many sun dances all over the United States, but I went to uh, Crow Dogs Sundance in uh, Pine or uh, uh, Rosebud, South Dakota, mm. and um, saw that uh, ceremony, which is four days uh, uh, for these dancers out there dancing in the arbor, no no food or water, and it was incredibly profound experience to see, to witness, to be a part of, just to be on an Indian reservation for five, six days. Mm-hmm. And, and the guy that I was with, um, you know, he's deeply ingrained in their culture. So it was like having the backstage pass. He, you know, mm-hmm. took us everywhere. So I really got to have a, a real experience. And we got to, we went out and killed a buffalo. And <laughs> five minutes later, got handed a piece of their heart and eating it. Wow. And I mean, it was, wow. it was heavy. Yeah. And, uh, and scary like it's, yeah. it's you know with the lakota it's like it's it's a lot of suffering it's like that sundance and you know the vision quest a lot of it it seems like it's a practice of suffering and i can imagine when you're out you know you go out to south dakota and you see what's out there which is really nothing <laughs> and i know how cold it is out there in the winter it's like yeah you better master suffering because you're going to suffer mm out there and somehow they, you know, they, and this is, they're not the only spiritual tradition. I think every spiritual tradition uses suffering as a way to achieve enlightenment. And, uh, that's, I think in large part, what the Sundance is, is about, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to suffer for four days and all you, you know, the way you get through it is to pray. You just Mm -hmm. continue to pray and the music's going and, and, uh, uh, you know, you, things happen to you, you get access to realms that you're not going to be able to access any other way. So it's there's uh, it a reason that uh, I think now that the, their traditions are remain, and I think they more than remaining popular, they're growing. I mean, there's a lot of uh, people drawn to uh, to them. The sun, I mean, it was probably, I mean, it's 200 dancers at the one I was at. It was probably, I would say, 50 percent were like white people. Oh, wow. You know. Asians, a lot of Asian, Mexican, South Americans, like mm. there's a lot of different kinds of people that are drawn to the tradition because there's something that is so pure about it. And I think probably something that um, I know I'm longing for mm-hmm. in a in a culture where uh, it's just nonstop comfort, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, <laughs> and things are easy. It's like to actually go out and, and just be in nature, just pure. You're out yeah. there in an arbor, there's a tree, no food, no water, you know, and to feel yourself yeah. 
in, in that way, uh, I, I've crossed over. Like I can yeah. really feel like the mm -hmm. materialism of our culture. I, I, I've, I want to say I've left it behind, you know, I want to, you know, I want a Ford F-150, um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? But, but overall, like I can right. feel like there's something, oh no, the, the, the spiritual path, yeah. that's where the action is. That's, yeah. that's really where my fulfillment is going to come from. And, yeah. uh, I think when I was in Hollywood, I got, I got wrapped up in, uh, in all of that, the money and the fame and the, you know, having the nice house and the nice car. And I can feel that that's all like behind me and it feels mm. really really good to uh be yeah. on the other side of that yeah i imagine sean and i both can relate to that on some extent having worked like in the fashion industry for the last 10 plus years you know and it's kind of start shedding that the identity and attachment to those things definitely is makes you feel lighter yeah and uh yeah and just having them be having them be optional you know? Yeah, like yeah, nice. yeah. You could still buy a still new nice. truck, but it's like yeah. I don't need this yeah. thing. You know, like well, and even I have a, a Ford Escape hybrid that I bought in two thousand seven to two thousand eight. So you know, it's, I'm twelve years in, and I I bought that, and I said I'm not I'm gonna ro ride this till it dies. <laughs> you know, and. I thought that was going to be soon. And then I just saw this article. It's like, oh, no, they can go to 300,000 miles. I'm like, I might be another 10 years in this thing. And so there's a part of me that's like, I want a new car. But there's another part of me. It's like the feeling of like, no, man, this is my car. Yeah. And it's like it's 10 right. years old. And maybe there's some kinks and some stuff is worn out and all the rest of it. But the feeling of sticking with it and... I, I don't know. There's something in that that feels better than getting a new car. And now I'm like, no, I'm not getting a new like. I'm not going to get a new car. I'm mm -hmm. going to wait. And if that's something about that commitment and the discipline of it feels really good. Yeah. So I guess tying that into also your connection with nature, you recently moved out of sort of LA up to Idlewild and now you're a lot more in nature, you know, having that been such a clear, powerful message for you in the last years with these different practices but mm. that car might not be able to uh, <laughs> might need the truck, navigate man. the snowstorms you're getting now. <laughs> That's true. That might be my excuse to get a new car. Uh, it does not do well in the snow uh, in Idlewild. And there's a lot of hills. I probably do need a four by four up there. But uh, yeah, I just I moved up to up to Idlewild, um, which is like two and a half hours east of LA in the mountains. It's just a beautiful little mountain town, about three thousand people, and. Yeah, for the last couple of years, I just had this, I want to live in nature. I want to be out in mm -hmm. nature. And it felt like a fantasy. Mm -hmm. And then once I officially retired from acting, like once I made that call to my agent and that was done, I was like, all of a sudden, well, I don't actually have to live in LA. Like there's nothing really keeping me here. And I have a bunch of clients, but uh, I could, you know, we could do it on Skype and, and so, yeah, I found this place up in Idaho. I just started looking. It all happened very, very quickly. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of synchronicity involved in, in it. So I trusted that. And um, it's been great. I mean, just living up in nature, the quiet, the solitude, the, the trees, you know, beautiful hikes everywhere that are, you know, mm -hmm. available to you. And small town, no traffic. It's, it's, I, I'm, it's doing something really good for me so it's my i can feel my nervous system yeah. <laughs> calming down right. and yeah. I, I yeah and it's helping me really let go of to some attachments i mean you know because you come into the city there's billboards everywhere yeah. there's mm -hmm. 
you know, it's all materialism. L.A., you know, it's an amazing city, but there's so much materialism so that you can feel the pull. You know, but up in yeah. Idlewild, no, it's just the pull is like all like it's the trees that are talking to me. Yeah. You know, and the trees, they they know what's going on. I mean, <laughs> you know, they're 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 all it's everyone is a, a Buddha. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm just letting them tune me yeah, yeah, or yeah, retune me. Yeah. Right. Retune. And trying to get into alignment with them. And I feel like if I can do that, everything will just take care of itself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I find one of the beautiful things about trees is. They can only grow as tall as their roots can support them, you know? And it's such a simple, it's like, oh, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, as humans, we're trying to grow 100 times faster than our roots are growing, so we're falling <laughs> over all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Feels like. So I guess now, like, moving forward, sort of combining your, you know, history of filming and production with the workshops you're doing, you recently documented one of your workshops and are now mm. sort of working on piecing that together into a documentary. Um, and you've done some documentary work mm-hmm. in the past. So how do you, what do you see kind of going forward in that realm? Yeah. Well, I, 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 I made a documentary about my teacher, not about my teacher, but she was the, 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 the facilitator of a week long group therapy retreats. You know, it's 11 part series lives online at group docuseries.com. And then, we showed that to some production companies and then eventually, you know, sold a, uh, a version of the show to HBO, which we shot mm-hmm. uh, recently with Angela and I as the facilitators. Cool. And that went really well. And now I'm we've kind of gone through a process. Originally, it was uh, they were talking about it as a series, but it, that didn't quite work. So now I am uh, editing it together as a featured documentary um, or I'm about to start. I think that's what it's going to be. So, uh, yeah, I'm very interested in doing more production. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of fun to film things <laughs> and it does something to it. It's like, you know, it's great to do these workshops, mm-hmm. uh, on their own, obviously, but there's something that happens when you put a camera in a room, it changes it. And, yeah. uh, it, you know, and I, I wouldn't put any judgment on it. Does it make it better? Does it make it worse? No, it's just something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cameras just become another witness, mm-hmm. um, in the room. And so, and so the work that you're doing is now not just for the people in the room, it's for, it's for the world mm-hmm. and, and it's going to be interpreted, um, by an editor in this case, me. Uh, but there's something really, really exciting about that. The number I've filmed it a number of times now. And so, um, but I want to keep making more content. I like making videos, um, more documentary. I have, I mean, I want to do something with men. I'd love to do a men's group, uh, film a men's group and mm-hmm. turn that into potentially a featured documentary around just and expand it into just not just the group, but what's going on with men right now. And, mm-hmm. and there's, there's all kinds of things that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about. So yeah, the, moving forward, it's like I want to keep doing workshops and coaching, but also um, producing uh, different, well, documentaries, videos, whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. we'll see where it wants to go. But that feels like, I mean, that was my goal way back when I was 20, you know, when I first mm. acted, you know, to take the, the conversation back to where we started. I acted in a play 
And then the very next thing I did was direct the play mm. oh, wow. because I felt like, well, the director's got the best job. I mean, they <laughs> yeah. control everything, yeah. you know? And so I directed a play and then I went, I acted and directed and act directed all through university. And I knew that I was probably a better director slash producer than I was an actor. But I also knew that, you know, I can do that later in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, was an, I was a young guy. I wanted to, how do I meet these pretty actresses? Well, I'm going to be an actor. I mean, that was also part of the motivation, which I think is for most actors, guys anyway. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> how do I meet hot girls? Um, so, but now I'm at the point in my life where, yeah, producing and directing feels like it's, it's time. So... Um, that's, uh, that's really where I think most of my energy is going to go, but it, it, it somehow to combine these, these worlds. And, and there's a lot of amazing things going on out there, not just the work obviously that I'm doing that I think would be, would make fascinating documentaries. And I just think, you know, what, what you guys are doing and I just see everything there's, there's a, a renaissance of, uh, of uh, people wanting to expand and evolve their consciousness. I mean, mm-hmm. it just feels like we're at that point um, with, you know, whether it's the plant medicine or, the, the, you know, everybody's meditating now. There's just seems like yeah. people are starting to understand that um, we need to come back to ourselves, get right with ourselves, connect with ourselves. Um, and that, you know, maybe people feel uh, that religion has uh, failed them. Uh, but yeah. th- th- we have an impulse to, uh, to be in connection with a higher power, I believe. And so uh, maybe people aren't going to be going to church on Sundays, but they're going to be finding other things to do to fulfill that, that impulse. And I see that happening. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah. And, and I think putting out media around that is something that I'm, I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, yeah, man. definitely. So at this point, is there anywhere that people can sort of follow you or see what you're up to in the meantime? Um, I am, yeah, I mean, you can go to my website, davidsutcliffe.com. Everything is there. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter, Sutcliffe David. My Instagram got <laughs> taken down. I don't know what I happened. tried to look at that yesterday. Yeah. Dude, my, the it, page didn't work. <laughs> it's, yeah, I don't know what's going on with my Instagram. I, 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 somebody was impersonating me. I reported them. <laughs> And they took me down. It's an audit. It's an audit period. <laughs> and then I, uh, you know, appealed and I sent them all the information and nothing. Weird. It's really weird. And then I just trusted it. You know, I was like, well, maybe. And maybe. I'll, I'll tell you, being off Instagram feels pretty good. Yeah. It is pretty great. Yeah. I did it for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm still I'm still on Twitter, Facebook. You know, I post. I mean, I have to have some social media presence. But uh, yeah, davidsuckliff.com is is where you can read about me and and see what I'm up to in my workshop, the up, upcoming workshops, uh, men's work and and otherwise. So um, yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for coming today. Yeah, thank yeah. you guys. Thanks, awesome. David. It's a pleasure. <laughs>